Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is future historian Steve Carper. Steve, welcome to Background Mode. Hi, John. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, I uh, found out about you uh, through a presentation you did at WesterCon in Salt Lake City a while back, and you were highly recommended as a guest. Let me give an introduction to the listeners uh, all about you. A uh, political science degree led you to a job in city government where you studied both the history and future of cities in real life. Combining fiction and reality was the natural next step. Today you are a future historian researching how the dazzling future that dominated the golden age of science fiction, we'll talk about that, was created starting with the technological frenzy of the late 19th century. You write a bi-weekly robot column at blackgate.com. And your latest book, published in June 2019, is Robots in American Popular Culture. This book examines society's reactions to robots and androids, as well as Robbie, Rosie, Electro, Sparko, Data, Wally, C-3PO, and the Terminator in popular culture, particularly before and after World War II, when the power of technology unfolded. Steve, this book is amazing. I've been through it in some detail. And it's the best companion of robot history I have ever read. I despair of going into any great detail in the time we have allotted for this show. But I want to congratulate you on a magnificent piece of research. Well, thank you. I, I put in a lot of time and hours and research on this. So it shows. It's just wonderful to hear. It shows. So um, I, the only strategy I could come up with for discussing this book, which is incredibly dense and well-researched and complete, is to sort of move on to some overall topics and then get into your introduction where you talk about some very key elements of robots in American life. Um, okay. So let's get started. Most people think of robots coming to pop culture consciousness with maybe, if they're a little older, the pulp science fiction of the 30s and the 40s, Astounding Magazine and Analog, or maybe well, later the Analog was 60s. Or maybe the many cheesy science fiction movies of the 50s. But actually, robot history goes back much further than the 1950s cheesy sci-fi movies. Tell me about the earliest times of robots in American popular culture. Okay. Um, in mythology, there's lots of stories about people turning inanimate objects into real people. Um, so the idea of mechanical people imitating humans goes way, way back in human society. America, though, uh, is not really big on mythology. And in American culture, robots have what I think of as a very firm starting date, which was 1868, just after the Civil War, when uh, a lot of technology had recently been introduced into society as a result of the war. And it happened that a very young inventor, about 22 years old, named Zedok Dederick, invented a mechanical man, a steam man, whose function would be to replace the horse and draw carriages at a faster rate. He wouldn't tire out. Uh, he just needed coal and water to function like any steam engine. 
but he was built in the shape of a human being and dressed as a human being so that it looked like this gigantic seven-foot-tall human was pulling the cart. I have a vision of Wizard of Oz and the Tin Man. That's that's the vision that I'm pulling up for this. How could you fit a steam engine into a seven-foot man? That must have been something. Yeah, um, it's... The boiler was sitting in his stomach. The steam, <laughs> the, the steam went out through the top of his top hat. Wow. And, uh, the smoke went out there, and he had a, a pipe where the steam would escape from. So, uh, And there, he was dressed in a huge vest that was sort of a um, protective uh, fire break so that it wouldn't overheat and put the uh, carriage on fire. Um, and he was supposed to run at 30 miles an hour through the streets of Newark, New Jersey. Believe, I don't believe it. And people went crazy. They, All the New York reporters came over. People from Albany sent a delegation down just to see if this was real. Yeah. He started uh, exhibiting it on Broadway across the street from P.T. Barnum's museum. I'd never heard of it. And um, the papers picked up the story all over the country, and everybody was talking about this first steam man and said, this is the future. Uh, it, he had sort of developed a kind of early motor car, if you want to think of it that way. But mostly what he did was a huge con job, because this thing could never work, you it only could stand up. Uh, here comes up the punchline. <laughs> it, it only could stand up if held by the carriage that he was supposed to be pulling. Yeah. So really, the carriage was supporting the steam man rather than the steam man pulling the carriage. And this quickly became apparent, and people started debunking it right away. But people were not any different 150 years ago. They wanted to believe, and so... The steam man went on tour all over the country. Imitations sprang up all over the country. More people exhibited on Broadway. More people invented steam men. And it went immediately into the predecessor to the uh, Pulp Fiction, which were dime novels. And a Steam Man dime novel was written that went into many, many printings and many, many imitations. There's an important lesson here. You know, we're in the age now where where Boston Dynamics is building robots. I write about robots almost all the time at the Mac Observer. And we have this vision of how robots are going to interact with our lives. But our vision is based on our psychology and our social pop culture from the from the year 2019 and robots are going to be part of our lives for the for the next hundreds of years and so right now we have this very immature image of how we're going to live with robots just as people in those days did when they thought that steam man was the future because of their wishes and their their vision and their feelings at the time so it's part of your culture at that moment would you say that's right? I think so. We have an intimate relationship with machines. Even back in the steam engine days, people 
anthropomorphized machines. They gave them personalities. Machines were bulky. Machines needed coddling to run. You needed where to touch them and fix them and adjust them in order to make them work properly. So it was very natural for people to take the personalities they gave their machines and put them into a form that looked very much like a human with all these personalities and but would have all the same strengths and feelings as machines did and that's where our image of robots come from they're very personalized machinery we sort of cast our own um, expectations onto the onto the feelings about the robots for example i remember reading in your book about Robbie the Robot in the 1956 excellent science fiction movie Forbidden Planet with Walter Pidgeon and Anne Francis. And that, that's a great science fiction movie. I highly recommend it. But what's interesting is, is that after many years or even decades of lurid covers of steam metal robots carrying around limp women and who knows what they're going to ha- what's going to happen next and the terrors of Machines Gone Wrong. Uh, Robbie the Robot is a fabulous servant, protector of uh, Dr. Morbius and his daughter, and uh, follows instructions and is intelligent and, and does what he's supposed to do as a servant. And those are rare. Those are very rare. Lieutenant Commander Data from Star Trek The Next Generation is another notable uh, robot android in this case that uh, aspires to the noblest standards of Starfleet conduct. But um, there's been a long history of, of robots also terrorizing humans for the sake of drama and selling books and novels. How, how, how do you think that's going to eventually pan out? I think it was um, Norbert Wiener uh, in his writings about cybernetics saying that We expected um, robots, artificial brains, computers to be subservient, and yet we also expect them to be intelligent. And you cannot have something that is truly intelligent be also subservient. And so that creates a very basic conflict Mm. that um, I think science fiction writers especially – uh, and in all fields, not just print, uh, movies and television as well, um, play on that that conflict and that contradiction and show robots that are either great servants, great help, that go beyond um, their own needs. I show there's a lot of works that have the robot sacrificing itself for humanity at the end. But at the same time, they can so easily feel that they are more intelligent, they are stronger, they are better, they do not wear out, that they are superior to humans, and therefore they should be treated as superior. And so this back-and-forth conflict between how we project our hopes and fears on robots is what makes them such a strong image in our fiction. Indeed, indeed. Well, let's back up for a second. There's a couple sort of uh, laying out the landscape questions I want to ask you. Where does the term robot come from? 
Okay, back in around 1920, uh, a Czechoslovakian playwright, Karol Čapek, uh, was writing a um, a warning, really, uh, about the horrors of World War One and the mechanized society that was developing with wholesale slaughter that he recently saw. And he um, developed um, a play that's R-U-R, Rossum's Universal Robots. And he took the word robot from an old Czechoslovakian term that means roughly peon or serf or slave or worker. Mm. And in his, in his play, uh, he, it's, the workers that are created are not mechanical, which is kind of a problem for the history of the word. They're artificial protoplasm that look exactly like human beings. And eventually, uh, his robots do take over the world and slaughter all humans. And uh, it's a very powerful warning about what we want is not always what we need. What is the difference between a robot and an android? In today's usage, we use android for non-mechanical, artificially artificially developed human-looking people, really the kind that Chopic actually used in his play. Uh, and that it gets a little bit... Um, wider usage sometimes that android is sometimes used for any artificial being that looks exactly like a human while robots are mechanical and Mm -hmm. do not look quite human may not even be fully humanoid they may have wheels or treads or other useful gadgets on them you mentioned in your book that it took an astoundingly long period of time for playwrights and authors to come around to the idea that a robot could be actually played by a human actor, such as Westworld. Right. Um, it, it is odd. Uh, the first one, um, pretty famously, is Maria in Fritz Lang's movie Metropolis, uh, where um, a robot is really just almost magically turned into a human being and played by the actress. But that uh, went away for quite a while, and um, really wasn't until um, television came along where they needed to do things very cheaply, and people in robot suits were were annoyingly hard to deal with, and they just said, "Why don't we just make them robots and, yeah, and suffocating? With, yeah. yeah, make make the robots look like people with makeup." And, uh, you know, data and people like that uh, became very much the symbol of what future robots would look like. They would look exactly like us, but just a little different. Saving money turned out to be a uh, nice forward-looking technology to boot, so it had benefits. (laughs) Hey, we've come to the end of the first half of the show, and we have to take a short commercial break, as we customarily do. I'm chatting with uh, future historian Steve Carper. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds after this break. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. 
I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. Thank you. We're back. I'm chatting with future historian Steve Carper, the author of Robots and American Popular Culture. Fascinating topic. I grew up reading, as my listeners know, Heinlein, Clark, Asimov, Sturgeon, Zelezny, and many others, and uh, sort of grew up with uh, science fiction and robots on my mind, and it shows as the listeners and the readers know in my writings at the Mac Observer. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, let's chat about some of the most famous robots in literature and movies. We don't have time to cover all of them, but there's fascinating discussion about some of the more famous ones. We mentioned uh, Robbie from Forbidden Planet, um, one of my, and we've also mentioned Star Trek's Lieutenant Commander Data. Uh, a couple others that are my favorites are Ava and Ex Machina, and the court in the day that the earth stood still. Do you have any favorites you want to chat about and give us some insights on? Well, I I think Ex Machina is just one of the best robot movies of all time. Uh, it's very high in my list. Um, and the um, the reality is that you know that was a small movie that uh, the writer director really put his heart into and shaped and did not make it into a giant extravaganza. And I think there's a lot of very small movies that I mentioned in the book uh, that work with ideas rather than robot menaces. And those are some of the uh, best movies to get into what the relationship between us and robots are. There's one from the early 60s called The Humanoids. Uh, I mentioned um, Robot and Frank, which is uh, oh. very up-to-date. Oh, you've hit my heartstrings. I have talked about that movie. I have mentioned it on the podcast. I have written about it. Robot and Frank is a fabulous movie. I've highly recommended it in the past. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, it's a story of an older man who uh, can no longer live by himself, and he gets a helper robot. The twist is that what the helper robot wants to do is have him be fulfilled and have a purpose again. It's Frank Langella. Frank, yeah. uh, Frank Langella, yeah. And the, the problem is that Frank is a cat burglar by trade. And what he wants to do is rob the rich creep that is taking away his beloved library. And the robot has to support this because <laughs> that's what robots do. And, and of course, there are several twists and, and a fabulous uh, ending in which People get what they want and need, which is very rare. Uh, and it's a beautiful little film. It is. It's, it's, it's a great film. 
I had forgotten uh, that that was part of the collection of robots that are benign and, and helpful and, and, and gloriously help out as assistants. Another, another example is um, C-3PO and R2-D2, and R2-D2, of course, in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a um, space scientist on the podcast recently, and we talked about going to Mars um, with robots. And the subject matter there was in a lot of exploration movies and science fiction literature, we go to Mars alone as human beings. But the theory that I had with, uh, with Mr. Beyer was that in order to live and survive in the harsh environment of Mars, we're going to have to have robot companions. Maybe they go there first. Maybe they 3D print the entire structure that people humans are going to live in. And after robots have prepared the place, then humans can arrive and land and the robots can assist them with living safely and being productive. So, I think that would be very intelligent uh, to do. Uh, it, it's just so difficult. We People in science fiction completely misjudged how incredibly difficult space travel and living in space would be mm-hmm. and gave us this false picture of it that we're still trying to overcome you know, decades and decades later after the Asimovs and Heinleins just went out to space like nothing. You talked about robots as servants, but you have several other topics in your uh, introduction. Robots as enemies, robots as lovers, robots as children, robots as successors, and robots as doubles. Let's explore some of those subjects. Those are, those are fascinating in the time we have left. We can spend right, a couple well, minutes on each one. All right. All right. Uh, robots as lovers, that's part of, again, mythology. Uh, Pygmalion making Galatea and you know the many, many stories that have followed that. E.T.A. Hoffman wrote The Sandman just about the same time that Mary Shelley was writing Frankenstein. And that's a story of a young man who falls absolutely in love with what turns out to be an artificial woman. And uh, you know, tragedy ensues. That's been turned into a number of uh, ballets and operas and uh, various stage performances. And there's some beautiful examples out there. The Tales of Hoffman or Capelia. Um, and so uh, in, and in science fiction, uh, Lester Del Roy's Helen O'Loy, uh, Helen, who is an alloy, the pun, um, <laughs> uh, you know, writes about the ultimate woman who turns out to be something that they created themselves. Um, this has, of course, been taken into sexual content. Um and now the development of love dolls uh, is making the news all the time. Yes, it is. Because, be, because it seems to be the natural uh, next step to take, even though it squicks people out at the same time. Yeah, it does. I wonder if there'll ever be any laws against it. It doesn't look like there's going to be. I mean, they exist now and no laws have been passed that I know of. But they're not really robots yet. They're they're really barely animated. It's going to take a while until they get to the point where they feel like real people 
that have the potential to be abused, and right. yet they're feelings. not. That's right. That's that's the natural evolution of science fiction in that area. Uh, the the love robots get more and more sophisticated to the point where the human wants to treat them as a machine, and the machine wants to be treated as a human. Yes, as soon as you introduce feelings into robots, things go wrong. That is, <laughs> <laughs> that is the lesson that all that is, that is. Uh, science fiction movies, uh, performances of any kind show. You cannot give feelings to non-humans and expect things to go well because humans are just too selfish to allow authors to intrude. I kind of sense that the technology world we live in, there isn't going to be a restriction on that. That, that we will hurtle headlong towards robots of ever more sentience, self-consciousness, awareness, memory, emotions. And we're just going to just rush headlong into it. And uh, there, the, it's hard to imagine any kind of constraints. Technology today is hardly constrained at all. Only recently has the government started thinking about putting limits on what giant high-tech companies can do. Well, I mentioned uh, Norbert Wiener, who invented cybernetics uh, in 1948, uh, seven decades ago, and he was warning about these same problems uh, relating to what he called mechanical brains uh, back in the 1940s, and we have not learned any lessons since then. No, I think the money is the driving factor, unfortunately. So let's move on here. We got robots as children. Tell me about yeah, that. We, well, uh, there are many of the stories in science fiction. Uh, people are building robots, um, mostly men building robots. There, there is some, um, you know, work on this that says that men build robots because they cannot have babies. Hmm. And so, uh, they use the robots as their children, but it's the Frankenstein complex all over. As soon as your child grows up, the child wants to be independent, have their own feelings, their own thoughts, their own life. And there's another set of conflicts that go into it that make very good fiction, but mirror our reality very closely. All right. How about robots as our successors? There's a there's a trope in science fiction that uh, the first human, the first entity from the planet Earth to walk on another planet outside the solar system, light years away, will be a robot and not a human because humans just can't deal with space travel light years distance. And then yeah, we, and I, then we I, get those science fiction novels like Heinlein wrote one about spaceships that are generational. Mm-hmm. And they and they travel in space for hundreds of years as generations pass, and then they forget. I think there was a Star Trek story too about this, and then they forget their origins and forget why they're in a spaceship and don't know that there's vacuum outside the ship and think this is their entire world. But uh, there is a case to be made that the the proper exploration of the galaxy belongs to mechanical beings that can under, that can withstand radiation that, that are not fragile. Uh, has that been explored? Uh, this goes back uh, amazingly far. One of the very first robot stories in uh, modern pulp science fiction back in the 1920s was called To the Moon by Proxy, where a man who was confined to a wheelchair 
invents a robot and sends him to the moon to be used as his ears and eyes and be able to explore even though he can't get out of his chair. And that's a perfect example of what machinery has been to us, uh, where we send machines down to the bottom of the ocean, we send machines up into volcanoes, they can go the places we can't, and yet communicate with us and make us see and feel those distant places we want to explore so badly. And it, it is, I think, a very good use of robots in the future. Yes, indeed. There is one more subject, and it's maybe perhaps the most interesting and, and terrifying, and that is robots as doubles. We talked earlier about androids appearing as flesh and bone, walking among us, but having robot-like powers. And this kind of feeds into the robots as successors as well. Um, t- tell me about robots as doubles. There's a real issue of whether robots should look like people or definitely should look not like people. There's issues both ways. If robots look exactly like people, they can fit into human society very easily, Mm -hmm. which is all set up to accommodate human beings with hands and legs and of a certain height and uh, a certain speed. But we don't like competitors who are like us. We're very much uh, attracted to those um, helpers who are not quite like us but can assist us as long as we can feel some superiority to them. That's why and robots that, built by SoftBank in Japan and other companies make the robot have a childlike face with big eyes. Sort right. of innocent and helpless and helpful. And you find that in a lot of recent movies, uh, like Big Hero 6, uh, where uh, there's another helper robot, and he looks like a giant marshmallow, mushro- uh, um, just white and soft <laughs> and, and helpless, even though he's very big and very strong. Um, we, we need that kind of protection for ourselves, I think, but it's going to be harder and harder to keep the two distinct in the future because, as you say, the technology is increasing so quickly that the robot and the human are going to get very close and probably very soon, much sooner than we would like. Well, my final question for you, I think we've answered in the course of the show, and that was uh, what has our popular culture and high-tech society taught us about what to expect from our future lives with robots. And I think we've explored a lot of those sensitive social issues. And we've also explored the idea that our perceptions about robot technology now is going to be different than in 50 years, quite a bit, as, as the reality of Android robots living amongst us be, comes to pass. But is there any, 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 any lessons learned besides from Wiener, Norbert Wiener, that we can draw upon in, in our current popular culture to kind of guide us forward that you can think of? I think it's important to realize that even though we want very badly to foresee the future, the future always manages to surprise us. (laughs) That's true. 
And saying that, you know, this is going to happen or that's going to happen or things are going to evolve this way or that way, those predictions always look silly in hindsight because um, they they extrapolate in one dimension. They just take the present and make it more. And in reality, the future keeps surprising us. Things come about that nobody expected, and it impacts us Mm -hmm. in ways that nobody thought of. So I think that we have a lot of preparation, a lot of warning, a lot of people thinking about how to incorporate robots into our world, and we should listen to them. But we also need to be careful because something out of left field is going to come into us and upset a lot of our theories. You know, I was just thinking that robots in the end might end up teaching us how to treat them. The Turing test uh, by Alan Turing, the uh, early computer expert, uh, was trying to figure out if you had an unseen respondent, could you communicate with it and figure out whether it was human or Mm -hmm. non-human? Mm-hmm. And we probably have machines that could pass a Turing test today. They have. I've read about it. But the real issue is that some of the better um, artists in our culture, uh, like in Ex Machina or in uh, Catherine Valente's Silently and Very Fast, which I mentioned right at the end of my book, that the real question might be, what does the non-human on the other side really want and how should they feel that they should be perceived that's right that's right well we're going to have to end it there we've run out of time it's been a fabulous discussion thank you for joining me well thank you very much Uh, steve carper is the author of robots in american popular culture it's available on amazon i highly recommend it if you have the vaguest interest in robots this book will tell you everything you need to know and more and it's just wonderful book and so I, I recommend you just go out and get it. And I'm, I'm not just pandering to the author. Uh, this is a great book from somebody who fancies himself as somebody who knows something about robots, John Martellaro. So, so I highly recommend it. Um, Steve, thanks for joining me again. It's been a pleasure. Great. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. You can go to my website. I have a companion website to the book that is also robotsinamericanpopularculture.com. I put there all the images that I couldn't put in the book. So you you can go. They're they're page-coded by chapter. You can read the book with one hand and look and see exactly what I'm talking about. There's more than 350 images Uh, online. And uh, if you want to say something, there is a contact page on there. And uh, if you want to, uh, you know, good wishes or corrections, I would always looking to make things accurate, if at all possible. So that would be a place I'd highly recommend myself. Great, great. Well, okay, thanks again, Steve. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed This episode of Background Mode, all about robots. Hope you enjoyed the show. You've been listening to John Martellaro and Steve Carper talk about robots. We'll see you again next week.